so it's dandelion season on the farm where I'm at. And maybe it's been dandelion season where you're at. And three things happen in dandelion season. Uh, the first is the farmers come around and they spray Roundup, kill all the dandelions. The second is we, on our particular area, uh, collected a bunch of them. And we began to drop them into oil and infuse them, make like a dandelion oil we can use in soaps and salves. And the third thing is we have kids. And our kids love, well, first they love the yellow pop of dandelions and the green grass. But then they love when the dandelions turn white and go to seed. And you can take them and blow on them and they scatter everywhere. Now, when I was a kid growing up in, uh, in Peterborough, uh, we lived next to this retired family that had immaculate grass, perfect, perfect grass. And no one could walk on it, no one could step on it. Um, and so I wasn't ever allowed to blow those dandelion seeds for fear that they might land on this neighbor's grass. I would get told off if that happened. And when I look at these two sort of images of this perfect immaculate grass or the wild scattering of dandelion seeds, I see one of them as this amazing picture of God at work through people. And I would say that it's the widening of his relational love through this, like the spreading of dandelion seeds around. If you think about this sort of the big picture story of God at work through uh, people and in creation, we have one couple. And this one couple uh, is to look after creation. Uh, and then we have one family, uh, Abraham and Sarah, and they're to disperse the blessing of God. They, they're told, you will be blessed but you're always supposed to have a view uh, that you and your family will be a blessing to the world. You will be blessed to be a blessing. And then they, we have one nation. And in this, in this national identity, it's to be an example and to serve the world. Hospitality, welcome, and to be set apart, different than other nations. To be a kingdom of priests to a world in need of saving. And so there's a slow, widening arc that's taking place. And then we get to Jesus. And Jesus provides what none of these could do. He becomes a new Adam, providing a pathway to redeem all of creation. He, he becomes a new Abraham, offering blessing to the least and the lost and those in the margins. He becomes a new David, ushering in a kingdom of peace where the last are first. And he opens the doorway to all people of all places to have a meaningful and life-giving relationship with God. But the story doesn't stop there. After his resurrection, uh, he teaches about the kingdom of God for 40 days, and then he ascends. And he tells this beloved community to wait for power to come. And so when the day of Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit is poured out. Today is Pentecost Sunday. And it's worth noting that the Spirit's ministry does not start here. It does not only exist in Pentecost Sunday, and it does not begin on Pentecost. Uh, the Spirit has been part of the activity and reign of God since creation. Now, hovering over the water, given to prophets and kings throughout history, the Spirit comes in Jesus, and because it is the Spirit of Jesus. And here at Pentecost, the specific giving of the Spirit to some becomes a widening to many. If you think about specific people throughout history having been given a drink of water, then Pentecost comes and it's a full-blown rainstorm to a thirsty people. But of course, people and systems and religion get in the way of this widening trajectory. We like to keep God hemmed down. Uh, and so Acts then is the story of the Spirit pushing forward the kingdom of God, widening uh, who is part of that kingdom, and blowing down whatever barriers people put up that get in the way of that widening arc.
So for the month of June, we'll be sitting in Acts 2, looking at the holy disruption of a Holy Spirit who comes as breath and violent wind in our lives, in our community, in our culture, and in our systems of power and privilege, disrupting and dismantling the ways we get in the way of God's work. So dandelions. If you think about the story of Acts, uh, you could you could look at the, the beginning of Acts and this church is born and it's amazing. And then in like Acts 5, 6, 7, they begin to hit some turbulence, some rocky waves and some fear and some and some persecution. And what it does is it sends the church scattering. And it's like the Holy Spirit blows on that dandelion and scatters the church. And then in Acts 11, we find out that the church is popping up all over the place. Those dandelion seeds have scattered and now they're, they're forming new communities of people who are interested in Jesus. And this isn't the work of Peter and John or the disciples. It's the work of the Spirit dispersing and spreading. But then Acts 8 comes along and Peter and John are sent to Samaria because Philip has been preaching there and the Spirit hasn't yet been given to to those people. And so they are invited to go and join God in this act of widening the kingdom through the gift of the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans. God invites us into this this work of the Spirit to continue to widen and this relational love and, and make more room at the table, if you will. And, and specifically, this is the first time the Holy Spirit goes to the Samaritans. These would have been sort of the cousins and cultural enemies of, of the Jews. They were sort of within, um, within the picture, but always sort of off to the peripheral and, and never quite uh, within the center of what's going on in God's story, it seems. And here they get the Holy Spirit. They're welcomed in. And then Acts 9, we find out Peter's vision about food laws, where food laws have always been sort of preventative. And, and if you want to be part of this, you have to eat a certain way. You have to embrace the dietary customs. And we're told, rise, Peter, kill and eat through this dream. And the Spirit blows down the barrier of food laws. And then Acts 10 comes where the first non-Jews, the first Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit blows down the barrier of ethnicity and ethnic exclusion. And then Acts 13 comes and the Spirit sends forth Paul and Barnabas to the work which I have called them. As in the work that the Spirit was already ahead of them focused on. And that is the widening of the kingdom of God throughout Asia, beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and definitely into the ends of the earth. And not in token ways, but in widening the kingdom so that everyone is truly welcome here. And then Acts 15 comes where they have this formal council. And they wrestle through what they've been witnessing. That God by his spirit is knocking down walls left, right, and center. And it's Peter, the good Jew, who tells the elders there that he's been seeing God pouring out his spirit on Samaritans and Gentiles everywhere he goes. And that if God isn't creating a barrier, why are we? He states that we should be making it easy for those who are being saved, as in we should stop getting in the way of what God is doing here. But I could go on, but maybe you see the, the pattern of what's, what's happening here. So when we come to the end of, of the book of Acts, the second last chapter, we come to um, Acts 27, and Paul is on his way to Rome. And just as a little bit of precursor to this, chapters 24, 25, and 26 are Paul before some politicians. He's pleading his case because the religious elite want to kill him. They want to snuff him out just like they did Jesus. And so he goes before the local leader, and then he goes before the regional leader, and then he goes before the king. And when it doesn't look good for him, he, as a Roman citizen, appeals to Caesar. He has that ability that he can go before the highest court in the land and plead his case. And that means he's on his way to Rome. But on the way, while on a ship, this happens. Uh, we read, when a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. They weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. 
But before long, a fierce wind called the Northeaster rushed down from the island. Since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So we see the spirit show up through this gentle wind that becomes a fierce wind that becomes a a violent, turbulent, tempestuous storm and blows them off course. And yet all they can do is yield to the spirit here. In fact, the ship ends up being derailed. The people survive. The ship is lost and they end up in the middle of nowhere in Malta. And you might ask, well, Steve, why do you think this is the work of the spirit? And I would say, well, it's because we have the same pattern happening all through Acts and the same specific word used as we see in Pentecost in Acts 2 for the violent wind. So let's look at Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Jonathan Martin, who's an author of a book called How to Survive a Shipwreck, he he puts it this way. He says, when the Spirit is first poured out on the church in Acts 2, she does not come gentle. She does not manifest as a dove. Instead, a sound like the rush of a violent wind fills the house. The sound of the hurricane was the sound of the spirit filling the room. It kind of reminds me of the way C.S. Lewis describes uh, Aslan, the Jesus character in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, The characters in the story all say, he's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. And, and I was listening to, um, to somebody speak recently about how Moses wanted to put God in a box. He wanted to understand him. He kept saying, who are you? What's your name? And every time that he did that, God would be a little bit slippery, a little bit evasive. Don't put me in a box. Could it be that our understanding of the gentle dove of the Holy Spirit, this, this one-dimensional idea of the Holy Spirit as gentle and soft, is, is, is off? And maybe there's a bit more of a complex person. Maybe we've put the Holy Spirit in a box for too long. So Acts 2, what's happening here? Uh, when? Well, this is the day of Pentecost. It's a Jewish feast of the early harvest. Uh, and the Jewish rhythms for feasts were that people would travel to, to Jerusalem from faraway places. Uh, the city would be bustling. Uh, if you think of other, other feasts like Passover, the city would have been very densely populated. People would have come from all over to be in the city. Oh, where? Well, we're in Jerusalem. But where specifically? We're in, um, in Acts 1, there's this mention of an upper room where the disciples were to wait. And this often sets the scene for our imagination for Acts 2. We think, oh, the Spirit came, he showed up in, uh, the Spirit showed up in this upper room. But we find out later on in Acts 2 that there's a few thousand people present for this. And so some scholars suggest that this would have actually happened in and around the temple, as this would have been the only spacious enough place for all these people. Who? Well, we've got lots of Jewish people in Jerusalem, but also devout people from every nation under heaven. A little later on uh, in, the, in Acts 2, we find out that there's uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocians, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, 
parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, uh, Cretans, Arabs, these, this, this carousel of nations presence here, present here. And, and so people from all parts of the ancient world are gathered and the spirit shows up and they all speak in their own native cultural language. So what? What's happening in this story? Well, we find out that there's a violent rushing wind, that God shows up like a tempestuous storm doing something new. If you remember creation, God breathed into Adam and Eve a breath. It's actually the Hebrew word for breath and spirit. And so here we see an act of new creation. The Holy Spirit is breathing. And this should cue us as readers that something new is happening. We should pay attention. They're all speaking in their own language, and yet they hear each other. The word hear isn't simply meaning that they audibly hear each other, but it speaks of understanding. Now, if you're a parent of young kids, you know that you can speak to kids. You know, maybe it's about expectations or cleaning their rooms or putting away their toys or you give them a plan, and they might hear us, but they don't really hear us, right? You see what I'm saying? In this case, they hear, the people hear, and they hear. They understand what's happening. And so what is fascinating is that the result of this, though, of this being able to hear each other, is not clarity, but confusion. It's a brand new experience that they cannot fathom or understand. It's perplexing. It's God operating in ways outside of their box. Uh, and, And so their expectations are not met. They don't know what to do with it. It's so perplexing that Peter has to get up and deliver his first sermon to make sense of what is happening. He has to speak clarifying words to a confusing event. He has to bring consonants to their dissonance. Uh, Jonathan Martin says, when the the spirit blows in, the first sign of the divine presence is not order, but confusion. When the early disciples were filled with the spirit and began to speak in other tongues, the world around them was bewildered. It is the first and most neglected sign that God is up to something extraordinary. Bewilderment. So as breath and violent wind the spirit goes ahead of the church to break down barriers and continue that widening arc of the kingdom of God. And when it happens to that early church and all throughout Acts, the first sign of the spirit at work is confusion. The spirit huffs and puffs and disorients and stirs them up when they start to get complacent. And we see that the work of the spirit leads to a response of bewilderment and amazement. And they ask in Acts 2, how is it that? How is it that this is happening? How is it we can understand each other? Uh, They recognize that God is doing something new in their midst, and they ask the possibility question. How is this possible? How did this happen? How is it that God is doing this in our midst? And then they later on land on this implication question. Uh, They ask, what does this mean? If this is true, if God is truly doing something new in our midst, what does this mean? mean. We need to reorient our lives around this new reality. And that's what we're going to be doing for the, for the month of June is looking at what does this mean? What are the implications for the Holy Spirit and the disruptive work of a, of a, of a disruptive spirit uh, in our community? How is God doing something new in our midst? What does it mean? And to finish the earlier quote where uh, the, the sound of the hurricane was the sound of the spirit filling the room, he continues, Beneath the noise, the splitting of the wood and of our own heart, listen closer. Is the spirit blowing in on the wind to you, even while the ship is going down? 
It makes us, it turns personal here where we begin to ask, what is the spirit of God doing? What is the spirit of God doing in your life right now? Maybe God has shown up in your life and it's all very confusing. Listen closer, lean in. What is the spirit of God doing in our midst, in the midst of confusion and transition and change as a community? We need to listen closer and lean in. So the spirit comes first gently and then as a kind of disruptive storm system. We might expect clarity, but we see uh, that the first sign here is confusion and disorientation. And maybe we felt that, especially as we've been in the wilderness. When God shows up in our lives in unexpected ways, we might ask the how question. This is a recognition that God is doing something outside of our expectations. We expect him to operate like this or that, but here we have something new happening. And like that first church responding to Pentecost, we might ask, what does this mean? It's an implications question. If this is true, what does it change? What do we do now? How does this, under, this change of our understanding of God, of ourselves, of our community, what does this mean? In the spirit of a Franciscan prayer, may God bless us with discomfort at easy answers. May we truly wrestle with this in our own lives and in our community uh, in this season of disruption.